Since the acts of terror that ended or forever changed the lives of hundreds of Israelis on October 7th, and really changed the world for that matter, I found myself coming back to a simple question time and time again. One that applies to not only this now catastrophic situation in the Middle East, but really to any big topic out there. Is there ever a right side to an argument? Now here's the tricky part about being a host who prides herself on the ability and the desire to see both sides of any given issue. Sometimes I do feel like there's a right and a wrong and how in the world could I square giving voice to a quote unquote wrong side in this or any story? So let's start with what I know, things that are right. Peace, respecting people's innate rights to freedom and religion preserving systems that place life over destruction or death. Wrong? Terrorism. The taking of innocent lives, especially children and women, even in the pursuit of what some may call a noble goal. So here's where I've been for the past really almost two months. How in the world do I cover this issue? How do I try to see both sides of a story where there are such clearly defined wrongs and rights? Now, to me, the two sides in this story are terrorism and democracy. Now, you may not agree with that. Maybe you see it through the lens of geopolitics or borders or historical fights over land. So here's what I won't be able to do with this issue. Have the knowledge to approach this topic from those perspectives, the historical or the political perspective. But here's how I know I can show up. Covering this from a human angle. So in introducing these very special episodes of We Gotta Talk, rather than me pontificate on my belief on what's right and wrong, and those who know me know where I stand, let me tell you a little bit more about how I will be covering this issue on the podcast. I summed it up on a recent Instagram post, which I'm going to condense here for clarity and for brevity. This post went up on October 31st. Here goes. What if we found a way to talk through this from more of the human individual perspective? Here's what it would look like. Talking with a Jewish or Israeli person and talking with a Palestinian or Palestinian American person, just normal people, not leaders or party representatives or anyone else with an official title, but rather people who are simply part of their respective communities. In covering this story in a more human way, it feels not only authentic to the ethos of We Gotta Talk, which is making an attempt to see another side of any issue, even when we don't necessarily agree, but it also avoids me attempting to be or track down the ultimate expert in this area, as there are so many with so many differing opinions. So approaching this from the human perspective, I hope, will help us to understand the people behind this conflict, one that I fear is going to engulf minds and more lives far beyond the Middle East. Now, as with other big topics I've covered on this platform, abortion rights, Second Amendment, climate change, I do not expect that this is going to change anyone's firmly held views. I know I feel informed to stand where I stand, and chances are you do too. But talking through this from the human perspective feels like a way to begin to understand multiple perspectives and to move forward with hopefully a different and more peaceful path. Okay, now back to a quick programming note before we get started with the episodes. You are going to hear 
two different episodes, one with an American Jew and another with an American Palestinian. You will notice the format of these episodes is a little different too. I didn't do a traditional interview with either of our guests. I gave them an identical list of questions, which they actually asked themselves while recording. And I even left the room while each of them recorded, giving them only the instructions of just a rough amount of time to speak and the instruction to share from their perspectives, what they want people to know about their story and their community. Now, I want to make it clear, they are not intended to be mouthpieces for the Jewish or Palestinian communities, but rather individuals sharing their stories, their family stories that weave together to underpin this extraordinarily complicated issue. Like I said, maybe you'll walk away with your mind changed in some way. Maybe you won't. But in the interest of living the mission that I always proclaim to support, I am showing up in the best way I know how. Just giving you some food for thought, some perspectives that maybe in your own echo chamber you haven't heard yet. And I sure hope we all come out a little better for it. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. What is your name and where do you live? My name is Amanda and I live in and was born in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I am 34 years old. What is your family history or tie to your side of this issue? I'm a first generation Palestinian American. My parents immigrated to the United States in the 1980s and they often sought after a better life for them and their children. I personally traveled to Palestine several times over the years to visit my family members who still live there. Um, and I've also spent a limited time, number of times in Israel, but have never been able to stay along because my family members in Palestine were unable to join us due to their lack of permits to cross checkpoints and physically be in Israel. Why is it important for you to speak up on this? I think it's very important for me to speak up about this because there's only one voice portrayed in the Western media. This is obviously not unique to this issue, but it's a regularity that we are also quick to point out when the narrative that's being sold is one with which we agree. Uh, time and time again, our media is proven wrong, but there are never any repercussions or recalibrations to what they say. And in the slight chance of a retraction, the damage has already been done. There are so many examples of this. The Hunter Biden laptop story turns out to be false. The Trump Russia Gate story turns out to be false. But if what's on the screen is something that we agree with, we accept it with open arms and the level of cynicism that it should be met with goes away. And I suppose it's a facet of human nature to, you know, accept what you agree with with open arms. But I felt compelled to speak today because. I feel that so much goes unsaid, unacknowledged, and unexplained about the happenings in Palestine in both the Gaza and West Bank territories um, that spans back long before October 7th. Um, there's a lot of important history that I think needs to be understood about the why and how things got to this point, if there's any hope whatsoever of the people forcing a solution to this complicated problem. I think we would mostly agree that if solutions were left to politicians, well, we will never achieve them. I recently heard a wonderful explanation about how 
I wish that I could portray so eloquently my feelings about this from Sarah Shulman, who wrote a piece for New York Magazine, and she simply stated that explanations are not excuses. Giving a historical context to what many describe as a complicated issue, that is not an endorsement of the present. Uh, the increasing insistence over and over that understanding history and looking at the order of events and the consequences of previous actions by every involved party uh, to understand why this moment exists in present history does not mean you're endorsing it. In a non-corrupt scenario, this is how we would actually prevent history from repeating itself, but there are. So I know that people get upset when they say that it's complicated or not complicated, but what is not complicated is the needless loss of life that has resulted due to little men in big suits and egomania and money in politics. And it really needs to be highlighted that wards are very profitable for certain groups and they help leaders stay in power. There's never more support behind a political figure until wartime. And that keeps them in power despite the people's wishes. What is one stereotype about your side that you wish to dispel? A stereotype that I wish to dispel regarding Palestinians in Gaza is that it's a home to millions of terrorists who seek to murder all Jews. The, because the average lifespan in Gaza is quite short, nearly half the population there is made of children. And when these massive bombing campaigns ravage Gaza, this is obviously not the first, not the fifth time that something like this has happened, half the casualties end up being children who want nothing more than to grow up and live normal lives. Killing them, maiming them, orphaning them, th this serves to only further convince the people of Gaza that Israel's goal is ethnic cleansing of the land. Palestinians time and time again have to audition for what feels like the world's empathy. They have to post videos and photos of their homes and family and children being blown to bits just to elicit even the slightest stirring uh, within those who have been sheltered from the truth for so long. And I think that is not the fault of the American people, but it is the fault of those who are behind what mainstream media is permitted and, and asked to portray. You know, another thing about the stereotype is that it, the Muslim faith or Islam um, is violent and wants, wants things of this nature to happen. I, it's almost laughable in a way because almost a fourth, 24% of the global population is Muslim. That equates to almost 2 billion people. So if what we're all being fed is true about terrorism and violence with respect to Islam, I think it's fair to believe we would have a problem of epic proportions on our hands, uh, which is obviously not the case. Instead, we have first world military superpowers causing catastrophic numbers of civilian casualties across the entirety of the Middle East. Um, if you look at the American war on terror, almost 1 million civilians were killed between Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and all of our doings in that um, endeavor. And now we have over 12,000 people dead in Gaza in the last seven weeks with 
God only knows how many more people crushed beneath rubble. They don't have fuel to use machinery to extract anyone or to move the rubble of the, the buildings that um, are all now have been bombed. 45% of civilian infrastructure has been destroyed in seven weeks in Gaza. And it, it's all for what? You know, the unquestioned and unconditional support accompanied by a blank check that the United States has for Israel is not giving us any geopolitical benefit whatsoever. The, the single time that we asked the Israeli military for assistance in the region with Ben Salman um, years ago, they declined. They refused to help us. So we're writing these blank checks and we're, we're screaming, you know, Israel has the right to defend itself, but what are they defending themselves against besides a small extremist militia? So, you know, it's, it's unfair and disappointing that many people, you know, are comfortable saying that, you know, kill them all, wipe them all out, that the people in Gaza are, are barbarians and animals whenever they just want to live freely like the rest of us. They want to come and go. They want to be able to leave their shore past one mile. They want to have free flowing water and electricity. You know, if you were under a complete siege for 18 years, unable to leave, unable to do any of that. If your children and parents and aunts and uncles were all killed at the hands of the IDF, can you see how it's possible the leap to Hamas could be made by some? I don't think it's unreasonable to see how a leap to an extremist viewpoint could be made whenever everything is taken from you. you you're living under complete siege by air, land, and sea. I do also think it's important to highlight that these people, because of the complete siege that has been over Gaza and the blockade since 2005, these people are left without economic opportunity and without self-determination or anyone to turn to. And this is how extremism is born. If you look at countries, predominantly Muslim countries like Turkey and Morocco and others, uh, when there is self-determination of a people and an opportunity for economic advancement, Extremism is not a problem. Extremism is not a problem. This is what people turn to when they feel like they have no other recourse that they've been left behind. The incessant one-sided condemnation of violence in Western media is something that's propagating the division between us here and other countries and the narrative that they want us all to believe. You know, that Muslims, specifically Arabs who just happen to reside in areas of great potential wealth in the forms of natural resources, um, that, that they're all terrorists and they're all going to come and get us and find us and, and blow us all up. Uh, you know, we've been peddled this myth that Israel's been the innocent victim in all of this and they're eligible for compassion and they do not have to carry the burden of self-criticism. You know, almost every person with authority or at the helm of an institution uh, has declared that Israelis are innocent victims and that Palestinians are not. You know, how can you be an innocent victim while at the same time being the recipient of the most robust standing aid packages in American history that you've used to kill 7,000 children in seven weeks? What is, what is the point of the state-of-the-art military tools and technology that we furnish to them if they are going to carpet bomb densely populated areas? Does $3.8 billion every 365 days not support a special operation? Go in, get who you want, and leave. Is this really the best that can be done with American taxpayer money, or are there ulterior motives? 
the the entire concept of collective punishment, which is a war crime, you know, by cutting off fuel, water, and electricity to over two million people, half of which are children, is just considered collateral damage. So what our government, as well as the Israeli government, call collateral damage is a glaring admission in my eyes that Palestinians are just numbers while CNN and Fox and many others are airing family-specific stories of Israelis and uh, Israeli families harmed by Hamas. Why can't the strife of both be illustrated? Why can it only be beautiful memoir or a beautiful piece, you know, for all Americans to see about who these people were that were killed in the October 7th attacks and why, how their families are, are struggling and, and dealing with the, the aftermath. Why is it never the, the, the children in Gaza, you know, shown orphaned or missing limbs or um, what the effects on both sides have been? So, um, you know, Palestinian deaths at the hands of the IDF have already well surpassed a 10 to 1 ratio. And this is not, again, to reduce anyone to numbers, but we just cannot be made to believe that this amount of force is necessary. I, I do not believe that it's justifiable in any means, especially when you have the fourth largest and greatest military on earth um, as one of the smallest countries. You, there has to be a better way to handle your issues than to destroy half of civilian infrastructure and kill tens of thousands of people in less than two months. You know, on, on social media, I went from getting hundreds of views on a photo of my lunch or a silly meme, something um, unrelated to this, but slowly over time, as I began sharing content from people on the ground in Gaza to show us what's happening there, what the hospital situation is in real time, the shadow banning practices that were so often complained about during COVID took a hold of my account too. It went from two and 300 views of something menial to 19 or 20 or 25 or 30 views at the maximum of an account of someone just driving down the road in Gaza, just showing the aftermath of what was going on. And you know, celebrities that have like massive followings, like Amy Schumer, who's posting horrifically racist and incorrect sentiments about Palestinians and Muslims without any repercussions to her career whatsoever, you know, butt up against the Hadids who post, in my, in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many people who are uh, third, third party viewers of this situation, um, things that say, please stop the genocide, please stop the killing, the violence does not have a solution, we can find a better way, they're let go from their agents and their contracts and their deals. So what does this tell us about what we accept as a society in the United States? You know, John Kirby gets on the podium and literally sheds tears, starts crying in the middle of a press conference when he's talking about Ukrainian casualties, rightly so. But as he refers to those in Gaza, staunchly, stoically refers to them as collateral damage. And that's what happens in war. This is a product of war. More civilians have been killed in Gaza in the, in, than in the entirety of the Russia-Ukrainian war. More civilians have been killed in these seven or so weeks that have been killed in two years in the Russia-Ukrainian war. Why does it matter where the civilians live? 
The Geneva Convention clearly states that there are no excuses for civilian casualties, but a member of our government feels comfortable referring to thousands of dead Palestinian children in a few weeks' time as a product of war without batting an eyelash. It's just severely disappointing and really disturbing, honestly, to, to witness, especially as a Muslim Arab American. People that are supposed to be representing you speaking like this of people that share the same ethnicity and religion as you is just really unsettling, honestly. Is there something about the conflict that no one is talking about that you think is important for people to hear? I wish more than anything that the entire story could be shown to the masses. That would be my wish. Not even from the beginning of time, maybe from 1948, which Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, uh, which led to the forced removal of 750,000 Palestinians as a result of the war. That was just the tip of the iceberg. But Palestinians, unbeknownst to most Americans, Palestinians have been the subject of a brutal, brutal and inescapable military operation at the hands of the Israeli government since 1967. There are two-tier legal and political systems that give comprehensive rights to Jewish Israeli settlers while failing to provide even basic protections or rights to Palestinians as is required by international law. The occupation itself is against international law, but this occupation coupled with the increasingly far-right Neset majority, which is the Israeli government, these are all things that I wish people heard more about um, in order to provide a more accurate picture of the events that are unfolding before us today. As the Israeli cabinet just gets increasingly far-right, you know, the uh, effects, especially in the West Bank with is illegal Israeli settlements, land that is meant for Palestinians continues to grow. And these uh, representatives of the Israeli government are in full support of it. So, you know, an example, so Israel's Edomar Ben-Gavir, he was previously convicted, convicted of inciting racism and supporting a terrorist group. And now he's the Israeli Minister of National Security. The defense minister goes on air and proclaims that Palestinians are barbaric animals like rats that need to be exterminated. These are members of the Israeli government with the power to make these things happen that are occurring on the other side of our TV screens that we will never be shown here. If not for social media, I wouldn't even know this information, but you can see clear as day them on TV proudly proclaiming these things. And it's just so disturbing. It's the, this all ties back to the issue with illegal settlers in the West Bank. They're all furnished with assault rifles from the IDF so that they can play vigilante with no oversight, no repercussions for their actions. And um, as they continue to occupy more and more land in the West Bank, illegally, Palestinians in the West Bank are defenseless. They don't have a, an army or anything to defend them. They're often harassed by these settlers who are now dangerously armed and their property is regularly destroyed. They're even murdered for simply insisting on living on their land. Since October 7th, 200 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank with hundreds more arrested and detained um, and there have been zero Israeli deaths, so it really begs the question, who is seeking violence? 
long before October 7th. These Israeli settlers have been a problem for, for so long because of their sense of entitlement and their uh, unpredictable behavior because they were backed up by the IDF and, and suffered no repercussions for their actions. You know, thousands of Palestinian women and children are detained in Israeli prisons without charge. These, as I'm sure many people read in headlines, prisoners in exchange for hostages with this four day pause, these are not prisoners if they are without charge. They're without charge or conviction. So in my mind, these are hostages too. There, there's no recourse for any Palestinian in this situation. An eight-year-old throws a rock at a tank can be taken away and has been taken away and detained for unknown amount of time to a location that's completely unbeknownst to his family. And that just that's just life. That's just what it is. So whenever you know these portrayals of like violent Palestinians are shown to us, it's often as an attempt to resist between settlers and the IDF and and again, the lack of recourse and representation that they have. You know, it, it even goes so far as with um, detainees in Israel. Israel can lawfully demolish a Palestinian home if a family member is charged, not convicted, not found guilty of committing a crime. Your family member's home can be demolished legally by, per their own laws. It's maddening. And, and remember, there's no Hamas in the West Bank. They do not exist there. That's a separate, totally separate political entity. Again, in my mind, these conflicts are welcomed as it just gives an excuse for more and more land grabbing and illegal settlement in the West Bank. You know, I've had friends tell me, you know, but the Palestinians were presented peace offerings many times and they refused. There have been instances of refused peace offerings because the number one problem is that the peace offerings never once, never one time have included self-determination as a condition for the Palestinians. They're expected to be okay with remaining under a military occupation, stripped of their rights and dignities, all in the name for peace. I don't think you or I would accept that. So why should they be expected to? It's just not a, it's not a way to live. And I've experienced this firsthand. When I traveled to Palestine through Tel Aviv several years ago, me and my mom, my siblings land to see our family. And we're walking through Tel Aviv airport and we're shocked to learn that my mom, who's an American citizen for 30 plus years at this point, would not be permitted to travel to Palestine with us through Tel Aviv because she was born in Palestine. So despite her not even having a Palestinian passport, they refused to let her into Israel. We were technically in Israel as Tel Aviv is a part of Israel um, because of where she was born. They tried to send her back home on a plane after a day long journey to see her family. And she eventually found a way to pay to get to Jordan in order to cross through a very arduous and expensive alternative route that did not involve her being on Israeli land. As an American, with proper documentation, <laughs> she was treated as a complete, uh, that, was, that was ignored as a part of her situation in this instance. So we're in this airport, we're separated from our mom in a foreign country. My siblings and I are then detained and interrogated in the airport for several hours after this. They wanted to know why we were there, when we were leaving, who we were there to see. 
just on and on with endless questions only to find that they already have the answers to all of these questions. The person interrogating me asked me to stop talking and he turns the screen he's looking at to show me all of my family members in the West Bank, their names, their photos, their relation to one another, where they lived. It was completely alarming. It was completely alarming. And up to that point in time, I had not been back um, in Palestine for a decade. So how they would have all this information about me and my family was very concerning. What was the point of this? That, that was the thing I kept going back to. We were born and raised in the United States. This is, in my mind, again, strictly a psychological tactic to make sure that we would think twice about coming back. And unfortunately, it worked because my siblings were just completely mortified by the entire experience. Um, but I, we did return after that instance as well. So then you make it to the West Bank after all of this, you have to pay for a driver to take you there that's allowed to cross the checkpoints to go between Tel Aviv and the West Bank. And checkpoint after checkpoint, you're stopped to show who you are, where are you going? And if not for American passports, I'm sure we would have been turned around 100% of the time. Whether or not, as a Palestinian, whether or not you can go to the next town over to see your sick relative or to seek medical care is in the hands of an IDF soldier's mood that day. They can turn you around with no reason whatsoever. All of these, you know, anecdotes on top of, as an American citizen, knowing that our tax money, you know, is get going towards funding this is just really hard to stomach. You know, we charge billions of dollars to our Chinese debt credit card to then give away to foreign countries and sums of billions of dollars while Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and can't afford to seek medical care if they're uninsured. It doesn't make sense. Besides a state-of-the-art military, our money is funding free healthcare for all of Israelis, subsidized college, immaculate infrastructure. What about how Americans are there in this country? How many people live uninsured, can't seek medical care, worry about where their next meal is gonna come from? You know, despite American people wanting this to end, none of it will change due to the actions of APAC, which is the American Israel uh, Political Action Committee, formerly the American Zionist Political Action Committee, but that must have brought a little bad PR with it, so they changed their name. You know, none of this will change because they're financially propping up our politicians who do their bidding in exchange for re-elections. Hill Harper recently, a Senate candidate from Michigan, reported just this week being offered $20 million to run against Rashida Tlaib to unseat her. And this is only one of many examples. APAC has proclaimed that they are prepared to spend $100 million in the upcoming election just to unseat progressive members of government. Why are foreign countries allowed at all to lobby our government for any reason? Any foreign country, the entire concept is thoroughly unnerving to me regardless of the foreign country. Um, you know, it's it's very hard to to accept, I guess, for lack of a better term. Once you know about it, it's very hard to accept. It kind of lives in your mind rent-free, unfortunately. Do you think people as a whole understand the true nature of the problem? Is it more than just about land, for example? And if not, what do you want to tell them? I am not an expert in socio-political affairs, but from my personal experience, I don't see this being about anything other than land. 
the constant barrage of trying to erase a people both physically and metaphorically is why I believe this to be true. Nothing about Judaism or Islam is proclaimed to be the crux of any of these issues. If your boot is on my neck for 75 years, how can you possibly expect me to not fight back? The current arrangement as it stands with the military occupation is not sustainable as can be seen, nor is it human or moral. And I know that many of these terms are buzz phrases to the average person, but the military occupation blockades and sieges have been a part of Palestinian life since 1967. I like to think that most people have the moral clarity to extend a mourning to victims of both groups, understanding that a 75-year siege of a people is what led to this point. Without siege, occupation, detention of Palestinians without charge, there is no Hamas. That needs to be loud and clear, flatly, simply, plainly put. The safety and security of a country cannot depend on the bondage of others. As long as that is the arrangement between Israel and Palestinians, we will find ourselves in this endless, vicious cycle. And I'm, I'm convinced of that. Is there something about your culture or people that you wish people knew? This can have to do with any historical fact or relevant point relating to the culture. Something I wish people knew about my culture, um, which is really lovely and an unfortunate side effect of the military occupation and ongoing conflict between Palestine and Israel is uh, with regard to olive trees. Olive trees are an important part of Palestinian tradition and their care passes down from generation to generation in a family. Last year, Israeli settlers, just last year, burned 40,000 of these trees to the ground some of which were over a thousand years old. And this should raise an obvious question, at least to me, how does an act like this contribute towards defense or security or a motion toward peace of Israel? Actions like these are very obvious attempts to provoke violent responses from Palestinians and are entirely what is meant by the term ethnic cleansing. It's their goal to erase every mark that the Palestinians have had on the land for hundreds of years. Just now, it's olive picking season and it's a communal activity. It brings families and communities together. It's a time when people work collectively to harvest and process the olives. Um, and it's a beautiful time that fosters a sense of unity and a shared identity. And ownership and cultivation of these olive groves are a key sense of Palestinian identity. And, give a sense of belonging to the land. And, you know, families have owned and tended to these trees for generations. Not to mention, it's one of the only ways that families can gain a livelihood in the West Bank. So, uh, you know, this olive harvesting season, many Palestinians were even afraid to bother harvesting their trees. Uh, a a, a deep-seated tradition, you know, is completely undermined by the violence and fear that they're facing. Um, with settlers in the West Bank. And just a few weeks ago, as a farmer was tending to his trees, he was shot dead by an armed Israeli settler in the West Bank. And what, do, what repercussions does that person face? Nothing. It's its own form of terrorism. But we are not taught, told, instructed to apply that term to anyone besides those of Arab ethnicity or Muslim faith. And so, you know, these these trees, they're fully aware that they hold a significant cultural, economic, and symbolic importance in Palestinian heritage, which is why they specifically target their destruction. 
you know, these, these are not benign acts of vandalism or anything else. It's, you know, over the last 40 years, over 1 million olive trees have been destroyed in Palestine. Ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. A week ago in Tulkaram, Israeli forces bulldozed for no reason. It was not the site of a protest. It was not the site of, you know, some kind of political statement. You know, they bulldozed a statue of Yasser Arafat, who was a partner of peace with Israel and United States, who won a Nobel Prize, who worked with Bill Clinton and Israeli leadership in the 90s. What is the point? What is the point of an act like this? Who is more secure? Who's more secure? And another you know, aspect of Palestinian culture, I'm sure many of you have seen the photos of watermelons and emojis of watermelons on pro-Palestinian posts and platforms. And a few people have asked me, what does this watermelon represent? What's up with the watermelon? Why a watermelon? So a watermelon has become a symbol of Palestinian resistance after Israel made it a criminal offense to publicly display the Palestinian flag in the West Bank and Gaza after the 1967 war. So Sleiman Mansour, a Palestinian art artist who I encourage you to find on Instagram, his work is beautiful. Uh, he's an old man now, but in the 80s, he was present at an art exhibition in Ramallah when Israeli forces shut it down, confiscated the pieces. And they were. he was told, him and along with another artist, were told that painting the Palestinian flag was forbidden. Not only painting it, but the colors were forbidden. So the artist asked, what if I make a flower of red, green, black, and white? And the officer's response was, it so will also be confiscated. Even if you paint a watermelon, it will be confiscated. And the rest is history. What don't we understand fully about Israel and Palestine and their respective functioning political systems? Palestinians do not share the same constitutional rights as their neighbors and citizens of the occupied territories are ruled by Israel without any rights to vote or contribute to the political system in any meaningful way. But from a 10,000 foot view, I think there is a lot that is not understood about both political systems. And I won't pretend to be an expert, but there's some recent events that took place in Israel this spring and summer that I feel are directly relevant to what's happening in Gaza now. In July, the Israeli government passed a bill that would completely eliminate the court's power to overturn decisions made by Israel's cabinet or ministers that they find to be, quote, extremely unreasonable. So this reasonableness doctrine, which is very vague, um, allows the courts to overturn policies when the government cannot prove that the decisions are made according to some basic standards of fair and just policymaking. So because Israel doesn't have a formal constitution, the courts are basically only back on decisions made by the elected government. And when this proposition came to be, this greatly concerned thousands of Israelis who took to the streets to protest for weeks. You may recall seeing some news, maybe not exactly understanding why, but um, this, among other things, would empower the Knesset to overturn court decisions with a simple majority vote. And it would also give the government control over total control of appointing new judges. So all this is happening in the spring and summer. Well, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu is on trial for charges of corruption and bribery, including allegations of trading regulatory favors um, in exchange for flattering press coverage from billionaire media moguls. So for a leader in the hot seat in his own country, the best thing that you can do to stay in power 
is to be the fearless leader in a war, to lead the way during a war. You know, as the prime minister of Israel for the 13 of the last 14 years, he has done a superb job of rallying all the different types of far-right extremists into one happy family that support him unconditionally on the crux of continued settlement of the occupied West Bank. Members are openly demanding the end of the house divided situation by making Israel into a state for Jews and Jews alone, loudly publicly proclaiming that their goal is to annex large chunks of the West Bank and to create a formal apartheid system separating Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs, most of whom have already minimal rights to begin with. Um, and the intentions of these Neset members, far right ones who are now the majority, 64 of 120, um, they're shouted from the rooftops, but for some reason, Americans refuse to believe what they are seeing and hearing. We are told to believe over and over again that there's only one aggressor and one victim in this entire decades-long problem. So, you know, they're effectively running two governments in one. On one side, within its borders, a democracy who gets closer by the day of not deserving the name. On the other, a military ethnic regime in the West Bank. So, when Americans say the only democracy in the Middle East, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, I ask not rhetorically, democracy for whom? Democracy for whom? And then on the other hand, in the Palestinian territories, the West Bank and Gaza have separate political leaders, which you'll learn is by design. You know, a common talking point that floats around the only peripherally aware is that Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. This is true, this is true. The military occupation of Gaza with, was withdrawn with, along with about 8,000 or so Israeli settlers. But the problem is that those settlers were paid to resettle in the West Bank. So at this time, George Bush urges the Palestinian Authority to hold elections. We got them out of there for you, hold elections. The problem that our government, the American government has and refuses to learn from is that we think we can just export democracy, just export it, send people to the ballot box with no background work, no root cause analysis, no research, no R&D before we just send people to vote, thinking that all political voids will be filled without any further consideration. Hamas is a prime example of why this approach is not effective. In a perfect world, that's all it would take, but then, when radical factions are allowed to participate in elections, notably Hamas and the Islamic Jihad, one can see where this would become a problem. And this was very clear to people who are rational and formerly part of Middle East envoy like Dennis Ross. Uh, he served as a Middle East envoy for Clinton and George W. Bush. And he urged that these two groups be excluded from elections for obvious reasons. And these two groups both boycotted the elections in previous year. Not only this, he was approached by the president uh, in the West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas, with concerns about Hamas winning. And he asked Dennis Ross, can you please talk with Israel to prevent this from happening? It is going to be catastrophic. So Dennis Ross urges the then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice to try to have Israel do some things to improve the more moderate Fatah party's chances. Like, can you get them to ease up on the border crossings? Can you get them to, to just take the pressure off a little bit and give the credit to, to Abbas? So this is all to prevent extremist group from ending up in power. Of course, both requests are denied um, as not to put our thumbs on the scale, which I would normally agree with. 
but we have been sitting on the scale across the world. Look what happens with our own political system. Instead of thumbs on scales here though, it's dollars on scales. So fast forward, Hamas wins, a civil war breaks out between Hamas and Fatah, leading to a total Hamas dictatorship in Gaza. The full Israeli blockade of the Strip by land, air, and sea ensues, and here we are today with a completely immoral, unsecure, Im, uh, just uncontrollable mess. And then repeatedly, I see on social media, those who understandably don't know better, over and over, Gazans elected Hamas, so this is what they get. They chose this, so this is what they get. The last election in Gaza was January of 2006. We're coming up on 18 years ago. Hamas did not win the majority of votes, but they did win by the electoral system. They immediately break the promise of the unity government. This is, none of this is what was voted for in 2006. Not to mention, because the media, median age in Gaza today is 18 years old, over half of Gazans were not even born when this occurred. And a third on top of that would not have been old enough to vote. So as you can see, this is a seriously uninformed stance and significantly more complicated than they chose this, they picked this, they deserve this. No one would choose this. Despite what the mainstream media and foreign bots on social media want you to believe, they are humans with common sense and a desire to live in peace and freedom, just like the rest of us. And you know, if, if our meddling in foreign affairs was meant to improve our safety as Americans, wouldn't encouraging rules and extremist, extremist exclusions from these elections be a common sense measure since we're sticking our nose in anyway? So this sad story continues on with Netanyahu financially propping up Hamas at the expense of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and talks of statehood. And if you only tuned into this current season, this is probably very hard for you to wrap your mind around, but I encourage you to read for yourself. Um, there are numerous articles in the Times of Israel, as well as the Haaretz, that detail why Netanyahu's approach was wrong and landed them in this current predicament. On October 8th, I read an article in the Times of Israel, actually, that it felt like taking a drink after a long drought. They were finally acknowledging a part of the root cause of what led to October 7th. Um, a short quote from the article states that for years, the various governments met, led by Benjamin Netanyahu took an approach that divided power between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, bringing Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to his knees while making moves that propped up the Hamas terror group. The idea was to prevent Abbas or anyone else in the Palestinian Authority's West Bank government from advancing toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. Netanyahu in 2019 at a government meeting was quoted saying, quote, those who oppose a Palestinian state should support the transfer of funds to Gaza, aka Hamas, because maintaining the separation between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza would prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. So, as you can see in this very infinitesimally small history lesson, there has been much going on behind the scenes long before October 7th, and there is not only one victim. And none of these actions have led to a safer Palestine, Israel, or America. How does religion complicate and or simplify this conflict? As I hope you're now able to more clearly see, religion is not at all a main player in the origins of the conflict. What is religious, however, is what has become of Israeli law over time up to and including what occurred in 2018. They don't have a formal constitution, but 
the Israeli standing law was amended to specifically dictate that the rights endowed therein, and I quote, are unique to the Jewish people. Rights were unique to the Jewish people. This means that only Jews can prove property ownership via deed. This means that only Jews can use roads that lack checkpoints and travel freely. This means that only Jews are able to attend subsidized universities. And how do you determine this? How do you determine who's a Jew and who's not a Jew? I'm sure you can use your imagination to, to answer that question. So it's also important to remember that a fifth of the Israeli population is Palestinian. This is a non-negligible population to, to lack the same rights as their Jewish neighbors. So when Netanyahu was seeking re-election in 2015, he appeals to Jews warning, quote, again, quote, the Arabs are voting in droves to encourage them to turn out to vote for him. You know, take a moment to consider what would happen if a presidential candidate in the United States warned his supporters that black people are voting in droves or Mexicans are voting in droves and you must show up to prevent those voices from being heard. It is not hard to understand why most countries in the world consider Israel as an apartheid nation. We'll never admit it in our media here or government here, but the majority of countries in the world consider Israel an apartheid nation. In a perfect world, how would this conflict resolve? I fully acknowledge the pipe dream. That is my thoughts on this. But in a perfect world, if we could erase some memories and go back in time, um, Netanyahu, number one, Netanyahu and the far-right majority of the Israeli Neset are replaced with leaders who want peace and coexistence. Then the military occupation of the West Bank ends, the full siege of the blockade of Gaza is removed, including the walls surround it, surrounding it. Literally, they are blocked in with a gigantic concrete barrier. The illegal settlements in the West Bank are vacated and land given back to Palestinians. And the borders that were agreed upon during the Carter administration actually being implemented and respected. And then the Israeli, or I'm sorry, the Palestinians as one, not in two separate groups, as one elect a true governing body without the meddling of anyone else um, and with the exclusion of extremist groups. And I think it would become clear quickly that when people are able to live freely, there's no need for extremists. They become obsolete so fast. And you know, once these this occupation, this siege is lifted, people can live and thrive as they are meant to with our own human rights and dignity. That would be the best case in in my mind. What is your greatest fear? Uh, it goes without saying that my greatest fear would be for the continued genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, um, which would lead to their being forced to leave into the Jordan, into Jordan or the Sinai Desert as was suggested in writing by the Israeli government uh, on several occasions, but most recently in October, the IDF actually told Egypt, if you take these Gazans and put them in the Sinai desert, we will pay off your $20 billion international debt. Uh, but anyway, um, equally scary to me is the further degradation of our very own political system at the hands of foreign countries and billions of dollars. Our politicians at all levels of government are increasingly bought and paid for by foreign special interest groups, which terrifies me. You know, Russian and Chinese bots online are succeeding in creating a divisive environment among Americans. First with the 2020 election, then COVID, now this. And I'm concerned that many Americans fail to think critically 
about who is benefiting from the situation, despite the topic, who is benefiting from making me feel this anger and rage toward my fellow American. Um, that's definitely something that uh, is a big fear of mine. And final question, is there something that is giving you hope? There are actually a few things that give me some hope with regard to this issue. First is that Netanyahu is and has been in hot water with his own people before October 7th. This to me shows that thousands of Israelis are aware of the blind that he's trying to pull over their eyes. Um, much of much like how our majority of people here want a ceasefire, but the government staunchly refuses, it gives me hope that despite the actions of their government, many Israelis know what's right. Another thing that gives me hope, and I can't believe I'm saying this, is social media. Uh, we no longer have to wait for the nightly news to show us the sanitized version of what's happening, to tell us what to think, and selectively show us what they've decided we should know. You know, cell phone cameras and social media has enabled people in Gaza to shed light on what is actually happening there. And I feel like people are definitely starting to wake up, especially the younger generations that know not to trust the mainstream media fully and, and um, they know and are more likely to consume more forms of independent news. So that's definitely something I'm thankful for. Um, even for myself, you know, I, I consume a lot of independent news and, you know, if I didn't live it. If I haven't experienced it firsthand, I would be under the same impression that a lot of Americans are. So I try to remember that when I get frustrated um, or upset. But my my ending message to all is that um, I urge you to, to learn more and I urge you to find someone that has been personally affected by this on either or both on both sides, actually, um, because you'll find that there's a lot more humanity and common ground um, to be found in this issue, then we're all made to believe. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of We Gotta Talk. I'd love to hear what you think. Did this episode prompt any interesting conversations between you and family or friends? Find me on Instagram at Sunny Abada and send me a message. Let me know. And as always, your ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. Head over into the Apple Podcasts app, top five stars, and leave a review. See you next week on We Gotta Talk.